Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. How many of you, um, how many of you have a hard time? And I asked this a little little bit ago, but how many of you have a hard time letting go of Christmas after Christmas is over? With you feel like a letdown. Anybody feel a letdown? Nobody? Okay, how many of you are like just real cynical people and like, thank goodness it's over, right? Okay, so you just really don't care. You're just like, or you're so worn out from the holidays, you can't even lift your hand right now. That's just the way it is. You're so worn out from everything. I pray that you find the rest that you need. Um, and uh, for some of you, especially the, the ones that uh, maybe have, have been the hosts with the most and the hostess with the mostesses uh, that had people over to your house and things like that, I hope you can find uh, a little bit of rest as well. Um, I, I, I'm kind of one that like after Christmas is over when I was a kid I hated when Christmas was over with now at our house We're like the tree is coming down probably tomorrow. If not tonight uh, We'll see about that. Noel is not happy about that um, But uh, but we'll probably be doing that <clears throat> Tonight or tomorrow sometime uh, before New Year's. How many of you leave it up at, until New Year's or after? How many of you like it's just a it's just a, a, a constant presence in my house the Christmas tree and the Christmas lights, okay? Uh, that's okay. That's okay as well. Um, let's dive into the passage this morning. We're, when we're looking at a passage of Scripture and we're committed, um, you know, to preaching expositorily, meaning taking a passage of Scripture and taking it verse by verse and breaking it down. And sometimes when you're doing that, you get really down into the weeds and you begin to nitpick every word, every phrase, every jot and tittle. And other times you take more of a helicopter view of it. You look at it from a broad perspective. This morning, we're going to take kind of an international space station view of Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to use that as a diving board into some truths this morning that I think uh, is important, some things that we need to see uh, today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, and we're going to read through verse number 12. And out of reverence for the Word of God, would you mind to stand this morning as we read, uh, as we read the sacred text? Beginning in verse number 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east at its rising, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where Christ would be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Because this is what it was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, that's that prophecy that had been foretold for centuries. That the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. We looked at that last Sunday. That Bethlehem is so small and insignificant and so unseeming that it made the perfect backdrop for the glory of Christ to shine through. And then in verse number seven says, then, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, if we were watching this in a movie form, this is where you would, you would sense that real dark and sinister music begin to come up because we're getting the idea that Herod doesn't want to truly go worship him. He wants to eradicate him. And in verse number nine, it says, after hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising and it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. 
Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. That Greek word when it says falling to their knees is proskuneo, means I am down, face down on the ground, as low as I can go, as humble as I can be, as in awe as I could ever be. I lost the power to stand in the presence of this child. And it says, and then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Anybody get any gold, frankincense, or myrrh for Christmas? No? Oh. I just always wonder how a baby, you know, how do you play with frankincense, you know? But anyway. And then, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate us to truth. I pray, God, as your messenger, that I wouldn't get in the way. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us because you are who we need to hear from. Thank you for the worship service that we've had already this morning. You tell us in your word to worship you in spirit and in truth and to make a joyful noise to you. And so I pray that the noise that we made as we worshiped you today was out of pure joy in our hearts, overflowing, being people who know how good we have it in you and are grateful for you. I pray this morning that if there's somebody here or somebody that is watching right now on our on our virtual service or listening right now on our podcast that may not know you as Savior, that may not have heard the old story of salvation. I pray today that as they hear it, God, you would convict them of their need for a Savior because without you in our hearts, Christmas loses its power. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us and that you would captivate us and that you would do in us what you have planned to do. Make us vessels before you now. In Jesus' precious name we pray and the church said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word this morning. <clears throat> so as we read this morning, we see that the, um, that the Magi came from the east. They came from far away. We know that it took them a long time. Some believe maybe they came by boat. That's why we hear that old, that old song for Christmas that we don't normally sing a whole lot of time, but I saw three ships a, a sailing. They think maybe the three kings came in by boat. Some think they came on camel. It doesn't matter how they came. It really doesn't even matter too much how long it took them to get there. What matters is that they came. That's the meaning of all of this, the fact that they came to Jesus. And what's significant about these magi is that they are not Christians or they are not ones who were, who were prone to look for the Messiah. They weren't born and raised as Jewish Hebrew people. Matter of fact, what they knew of, Jewish, of, of Judaism and what they knew of the Hebrew culture was something that they had only studied in scrolls and only heard stories in their travels because they weren't raised in a culture. They weren't raised in a background to look at God, at Yahweh. They weren't raised to look for the Messiah. This is something that they sought out, probably starting with an intellectual thing, just studying ancient texts because the Magi were the most educated, were the elite. They were advisors to kings and shahs and princes and queens. So they wanted to know everything they could about the world. And as they read the sacred text of Isaiah, and as they read the text of Daniel, and as they read the Messianic Psalms, it began to grab hold of their heart that they weren't just reading other scrolls. This was something that was coming alive inside of them. And then they saw a star that began to form in the sky and they were compelled by the Holy Spirit. I must go to where that star is because it is guiding us to the Messiah. And he is greater and he is a king that will rule over all. They wanted to see that king. Men who had lived their entire life in the courts of kings and queens and princes. 
said, we want to go see this newborn king because he is the king of all kings. He's the king to beat all kings. The word of God, the text of God had grabbed hold of their heart. That's the power of the word that we read this morning. That's the power of the word that you hold in your lap. Many times we look at that and say, do I have time for that today? I'm glad that the wise men didn't look at the scrolls and say, I don't have time for that today. Because for them personally, it saved their souls that they looked at those texts and they gave into the conviction of the word of God. And I pray that's the attitude that we have as we get into the word today. But we opened the service this morning by singing, Oh, come all you faithful. And some of you might have thought this morning, like, wait a minute, didn't we see that, sing that last week? And yes, we did. And I liked it so much that since I was organizing the music today, I said, we're singing it again, right? Uh, because it's one of, probably one of my favorite, outside of All Holy Night, it's probably one of my favorite uh, Christmas carols, my favorite Christmas hymns. And the song, Oh, come all you faithful, has a really cool history. It was first written in Latin. Uh, so the only thing I know about Latin is Semper Fi, and then I know Pig Latin. Um, so if you've never heard Pig Latin, it's a beautiful language. I suggest you try it. Um, but um, it was originally given the title, Adeste Fidelis, meaning come all ye faithful. Fidelis meaning faithful. And it was written by John Francis Wade, who was an 18th century, century hymn writer. It was then translated in 1841 by a guy named Frederick Oakley. And that's where we get the English title now, O Come All Ye Faithful. And it's a carol that has stood the test of time. But it really doesn't feel like Christmas sometimes until we hear, O Come All Ye Faithful. And I think as we gather to worship as the church of Jesus Christ, I think it's a beautiful call to worship, right? O Come All Ye Faithful. But the truth is, after the week that sometimes we can go through and sometimes we can have, do we always feel like we're the faithful standing there singing? A lot of times we feel like it's the unfaithful standing there. And that's the beauty of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because as unfaithful as we are, he is always faithful to forgive and to redeem and to restore. But one of the most touching stories that I ever heard about the song was told by Dr. Lewis Arnold. And he was a, a close family friend and also a friend of this ministry for many years before he went home to, G to be with Jesus. His life was amazing. He was a pilot. He had his pilot's license and he would use an airplane back in the 40s and the 50s and he would fly over the city and over farms and over the rural areas with a loudspeaker and he would preach through that loudspeaker and he became known as the voice from the skies. And he did mission work and my great-grandfather was able to go and do mission work with him in the Bahamas and things. And so he had just an amazing life and he lived pretty much just kind of just sold out to the Lord and wanted to see people come to Christ. But remember him telling us about a time that he was in the Bahamas and he went to worship with, uh, with some Bahamians there in, in a church that he was working with there. And as they were walking through this little village in the Bahamas, you got to remember this was like in the 40s and the 50s and maybe even the 60s. And so, you know, things, things were pretty rural, pretty rustic. And so they would walk through the village and tell people it was time for church. And so as they would walk through the village and, and tell people it was time and announce that it was time for church, they would be singing, Oh, come let us adore him. And remember Dr. Arnold saying this. He said, you know what? I had never heard that song other than in the context of Christmas. He said, but we were over in the Bahamas in the middle of June. And that's the way they called their people to come to worship every single time they met for worship. Because they wanted their people as they came in to have that idea of adoration when they came to meet with the King of Kings and to worship the Savior. The same kind of adoration and the same kind of idea that the Magi had as they came from afar. These people left their, their, they left their huts or they left their houses to go down the street to the worship center. But these people, the Magi, they left their homes and they left their jobs and they left their prestige and they traveled not knowing if they would ever make it back and they traveled to see the King of Kings because they had the spirit of adoration. And I wonder sometimes church, do we have that same spirit of adoration when we approach worship of Christ? 
Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. We sing about it in the context of Christmas. It gives us the images of the shepherds that are in the fields when the angels said, a savior has been born today. And so they came with joyful hearts, faithful to the message that they had heard. And they went and they saw the baby in the manger. And we also think about it in the context of the Magi and how they traveled miles to come adore the King of Kings. And I believe that the Magi are recorded in scripture to teach us a lesson. To teach us that there should be nothing, no distance, no anything that should stand in the way of us coming to adore the King of Kings. Nothing should stand in the way of that. We often let a lot of things stand in the way. We let fear, we let doubt, we let a lot of things kind of get in the way of us turning our attention and our mind upon Christ. A faithful, joyful desire to worship Jesus Christ. And the first thing we have to understand is that Jesus calls us all to come to him. It's not a call just for a couple of people. It's not a call just for the church folk. It's not a call just for the preachers and the Sunday school teachers and the deacons. <laughs> the deacons need a louder call. No, I'm just teasing. All right. Um, it's not a call for that. It's a call for everyone. And it's a call for the lowest, the vilest. Remember that old song, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean? It's true. It's not just a catchy lyric. Jesus' blood covers all of our sin. All of our sin. And casts it as far as the east is from the west. He calls us all to come to him because he knows all need him. See that, that song, that line of the song says, O come all ye faithful. It begins with an invitation is, O come. O come all ye faithful. See when Jesus was born, an invitation was given to come to the Messiah. The angels invited the shepherds to come and see Jesus. The prophecy and a star invited the magi to come to Jesus. Who does Jesus call today? That's the question. Who does Jesus call today? He calls all of us. And this is a theological debate that's gone on for centuries between scholars and commentators on whether it's on who the elect are and whether God has chosen certain people to be saved and certain people to not be saved. Here's what I believe. I believe that God is God and he's a God of grace and he has made salvation available to all. And he knows who is going to come to him. He knows who will respond in faith. But it does not stop his desire to want them anyway. Even in the midst of their rebellion. If you're looking at the song, it's the faithful and the joyful and the triumphant that come to Jesus, right? Oh, come all you faithful, you joyful and you triumphant. How many times do you feel like that song? I'm faithful, I'm joyful, and I'm triumphant. How many times do you necessarily come into church feeling like, yeah, that's me. I'm faithful, I'm joyful, I'm triumphant. You know, and that's a trick question, right? Because if we come in feeling that way, guess what? We're also prideful, right? A lot of times we don't feel like that song is for us because we feel the opposite. So a lot of times I don't feel necessarily faithful. I don't feel like I'm filled and overflowing with the joy of Jesus a lot of times in my life. And there are a lot of times in my life when I want to win, I'm a competitive person, but a lot of times in my life I just flat out lose. Anybody, anybody with me on that? We don't always feel like that. So maybe we feel like that song's not for us. Maybe it feels like the call of Christ is not for us because I'm not joyful enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not triumphant enough. No, this song is written in the context of those who come to me will be made joyful, will be made faithful, will be made triumphant in him. You see, he calls the weary and the burdened to him. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. So stop right there, and we're going to pick back up in the verse in just a second. But Does that describe anybody in this room? That one describes it, right? 
Maybe the song doesn't describe it, but the very words of Jesus Christ are, come to me, not the faithful, not the joyful, not the triumphant, but come to me those who are weak and burdened and worn out and tired and downtrodden. On the edge of giving up, come to me who are weary and burdened. Now look at the result of coming to him. When you come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. So what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to latch on to him and he will carry, help carry the weight and lighten the load in our lives. The weight of sin, the burden of sin and death and guilt and shame. He lightens the load on that. Why? Because I am meek and lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls those who are weary and burdened to come to him, but he also calls sinners. So for the weary and burdened, come to him, but guess who's usually the ones who are weary and burdened? The sinners. And every one of us in this room, every one of us watching right now, are sinners. That's the way we're born. It's our birthright. It's our tragic birthright right now. We inherit it. But he calls the sinners. See, during Christ's ministry, he took a lot of flack because he didn't hang out with all the religious folk like most of the Pharisees and the scribes did. We've talked about this a million times. Jesus didn't hang out with who preachers were supposed to hang out with. He hung out with the tax collectors. He hung out with the sinners. He hung out with the lepers. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the lame and the blind and the dying, the down and out. He was giving alms to the poor. He was doing all of these things. All these things that when you think about Pharisee and things, we never saw examples of that happening in Scripture. Jesus took a lot of flack from the religious elite for that, and they thought, this can't be the Messiah because this isn't the Messiah we've been preaching for centuries. And in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees walk into a meal, and they call him out on this because he's having dinner with some tax collectors at Matthew's house. And he says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, it says, Now when he heard this, as the Pharisees were talking about him, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I, I, now, <laughs> I'm trying to picture that in my head when Jesus just calls out to the Pharisees, you know. Why don't you, why don't you go learn what that means? Now, the Pharisees were probably the most educated men in the society at that time in Jewish society. He's like, why don't you go study up a little bit? Coming from a carpenter from Nazareth who is a rabbi who's got a bunch of guys who were Torah school dropouts telling them to go learn something. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. So are you covered in that version of the song? Not, oh, come all you faithful, but oh, come all you weary and burdened, oh, come all you sinners. Maybe we're covered more by that version of the song than we are by, oh, come all you faithful. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to pick and choose who he would save. So why doesn't the song say, oh, come all you sinners weary and burdened? Because it's not about what you are when you come to him. It's about what he makes you when you do. See, Jesus doesn't call us to come weary and burdened and say, stay that way. Jesus cares more about us than to just leave us the way we are. He knows that there's no other way for us to become joyful, triumphant, and faithful unless he's influencing our lives. So for some of you who are maybe finishing the year on fumes and looking forward to another year thinking, oh man, it's going to start all over again in just a few days. I hope this message encourages you a little bit. I want to look at these three things that Jesus will make you. When you come to Jesus, he will make you three things. He will change you in three ways. Number one, he will make you faithful. Jesus will make us faithful. When he does his work in us, faith is the result. See, what we have to understand is in our flesh, in our birthright of sin, we're not prone to faithfulness on our own. None of us are prone to it. At our core, 
All of us are commitment phobic. We really are. How many of you have trouble committing? See, some of you won't even raise your hand because you don't even want to know if you, you don't even want to commit to the answer. We, we, we have trouble with commitment a lot of times. Some of us, we're people pleasers. So we'll commit and then regret that we committed and then spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to get out of that commitment, okay? But we are all commitment phobic. Why? Because at our core, we don't want to commit. We want people to commit to us, but we don't want to commit to anything. We struggle with commitments to promises. We struggle with commitments to diets. If you can't say amen there, you can say oh me. We struggle with commitments to relationships. We struggle with commitments to credit card bills. Am I hitting a little too close to home now? How many times have you seen a sad story play out when two people fall in love and they are, at, they are just like Romeo and Juliet 2.0, which that's not a good example to use, is it? Um, why do we always say that? Like the, like the greatest romantic couple is two people who killed themselves because of love. Anyway, that's not a good example. Let's throw that one out, right? Um, we think, man, they're so in love. They're like the perfect couple. And then you hear like in a month or two that things are not going well. Because usually it strains our commitment a lot of times we're scared of things like that. I heard of a couple one time, and I share this every time I do premarital counseling, a couple one time in New York, and it hit the paper in the New York Times several decades back that they had some very unconventional wedding vows where they said, you know, I vow to love, honor, and cherish you until death do us part. And he says, I vow to love, honor, and cherish you so long as I shall love you. And it's like, well, that's easy. That's, that's like a free, that's like, a, that's like an open-ended out from that, whole, from that whole commitment, isn't it? See, because at our core, we're commitment phobic. And faithfulness is a commitment. Faithfulness is a commitment. And the Christian faith is all about commitment. We come to Jesus Christ through our faith in him. Faith is a commitment. It's not just a, well, I'll see how it goes with Jesus. And then if that doesn't work out, I'll try something else. No, when you put your saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're saying I'm riding or dying with Jesus Christ. I'm not turning back. I'm following and I'm surrendering to him. But we can't even do that unless God gives us the faith. We give him a mustard seed of faith and he grows that into a mountain of it. See, faithfulness is a commitment. See, you can't grow in your faith if you're not committed to nurturing a relationship with Christ. You can't get more plugged in at your church unless you're committed to showing up and serving. You can't deepen your faith and commitment unless you're first committed to do the basic things and grow. And here's the rub. All of this is based on making a commitment. But the beauty of the Christian relationship and the beauty of the relationship with Jesus Christ is that we will never outcommit Jesus' commitment to us. As committed as we may become to Jesus Christ, it will never, never overwhelm the commitment that we make to Christ or that he made to us. We know the frustration sometimes in relationships where you feel like you're just more into them than they are into you. I'm more committed to this than the other person in the relationship is more. You'll never have to feel that way with Christ. You'll never find a place where Jesus is not committed to you. He proved his commitment on the cross. He proves his commitment. He says, I am with you wherever you go. He proves it. He says this, all we like sheep have gone astray in the book of Isaiah. See, we may start out great, but on our own, we're eventually going to stray from the commitment that it takes. We're eventually going to fall short. Every single one of us. A lot of times I like to think that I'm Paul, but too many times I'm Peter the one who turns his back, the one who denies, the one who just puts my foot in my mouth a lot of times. I want to be Paul, but too many times I play the role of Peter. And if we're honest, that's about every one of us in the room. 
But you see, faithfulness is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to be faithful. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, keep your eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lays before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You see, Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the completer of our faith. Your faith is not complete if you don't have faith in Christ. We can have a faith in a lot of things, but our faith will never be complete until we have faith in Jesus. And what did he do? He became the ultimate example of faithfulness. In the garden, he sweat drops of blood asking God the Father, hey, if you've got any other way to redeem outside of the cross, I'm all ears. But when it became clear that it was no other way, Jesus faithfully went to the cross for our good and for God's glory. See, 2 Corinthians tells us that when we come to him in salvation, he makes us new creations in Christ. So we know we're not commit, we're, we know we're commitment phobic apart from him, but he grows our commitment because each time we commit to him, he proves just how faithful he is to us and it becomes not a drudgery, but a delight to serve him. See, faith is also strengthened in the word. Romans 10 says, faith comes from what is heard by hearing, hearing what is through the message about Christ or by hearing the word of God. So when we're fearing, feeling less than faithful, less than committed to the road that lies ahead, he's given us the example of undying faithfulness in his word, but he's also given us his word that grows us in our faith to him. The promises that we find in his word that strengthen our faith to his commitment. Faith is also strengthened in his presence. In Isaiah chapter 43, it tells us this. When you pass through the waters, and that means the waters of difficulty, the waters of depression, the waters of sorrow, the waters of life, and you feel like you're being overwhelmed. He says, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters of life, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. And the flame will not burn you because I am your Lord God. I am the Lord. You are safe in me. Show me faith. Trust me. Come to me. And I will wrap my hands of faithfulness around you. And come what may you'll know that I'm there, my presence with you. A lot of times what we do is we pray in faith, waiting for God to deliver us. But what God gives us instead is greater than deliverance. He gives us his presence to sustain us. That's his faithfulness to us. He's faithful to us. Jesus will also not only make you faithful, but he will also make you joyful. So, oh, come all you faithful. If you come to him, he will make you faithful. Then if you come to him, he will make you joyful. You see, what is joy? We got a lot of different explanations for what joy is, and it's more than a dishwashing liquid. And I've heard the, the acrostics many times, you know, Jesus, others, and you. That's joy. And that's, that's beautiful. That's the pattern. That's the, like it's the path to joy. Put Jesus first, then others, and then you last. I think that's the path to contentment. I think joy is only something that's given by being close to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the one who brings us that. Joy is the evidence of God's spirit at work in our lives. See, the Bible talks about joyfulness and says it is a fruit of the spirit. It's what grows out of a healthy soul is what joy is. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter five. So, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the law is not against such things. When you have a healthy soul, joy is the byproduct of the spirit working in your life. You see, it's like an apple tree. If you're growing an apple tree in your yard and you walk by it one day in the middle of the summer and you see that there's oranges growing on that apple tree, what is your first conclusion? 
I didn't grow an apple tree. I grew an orange tree, right? You don't say, oh, the apple tree decided to grow oranges this year. I wonder next year what it'll give us. No, when you sow the seed of the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit will sow seeds of righteousness in you. When you come to Jesus, he makes you faithful. He makes you joyful in him. He does things. He brings things alive in us that we never had alive before. And joy is only sustained in Jesus. We confuse joy with happiness a lot of times. If you look through scripture, you'll find a lot of sad people. You find a lot of people who went through some severe sadness in their lives. Mary and Joseph probably went through a lot of sadness in their lives too. Probably in their journey to Bethlehem, there was probably some chaotic, there was some sadness thing there too. You think Mary didn't want to be surrounded by her friends and family when, when the baby was born and she only had Joseph and a bunch of animals. There's probably some sadness in their lives. There was sadness in the life of David. Yes, he brought that sadness on himself through sin. There was sadness in many people's lives. Does that mean that they didn't have joy? No, they still had joy. See, happiness and joy are worlds apart. And I like to say it this way, and this is deep, and you've probably never heard this before. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Jesus. You've never heard that one before, have you? But it's true. Our happiness is defined by what goes on around us. But the joy is defined by what's growing inside of us. When you come to Jesus Christ, the Spirit begins to produce that fruit of joy in you. See, joy comes from Christ. It's a, it's a deep down kind of peace. It comes from something that's not part of this world. It comes from something that is placed in you by the living God and it's placed inside of your heart. And out of that overflow, a fruit of the spirit of love and joy comes out because happiness depends on what goes on around us, but joy depends on what God is doing inside of us. This is why we can have peace that passes all understanding. This is why in the middle of sorrow and in the middle of his life completely falling apart, Job was still able to say, still I will praise the name of God. Because he still had the joy in the midst of him. The angel said to them in Luke chapter 2, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy which shall be to all people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you who is Messiah the Lord. Now, there's, there's nothing that should strike up happiness in shepherds' hearts, in Bethlehem on the night watch to hear that a baby was born in a stall. That's not a happening that really brings a lot of joy or a lot of, a lot of happiness, but it brings a lot of joy because it's the Savior, the one who would tend to our hearts more than anything. What caused the joy? Jesus did. Jesus is still bringing joy to everyone today, but you have to come to him to understand what it's about. And then lastly, as we close out, Jesus not only makes us faithful, he not only makes us joyful, but he will then make us triumphant. Here's something, here's a real feel good, your best life now kind of thing for you today. You want a little tidbit to make you feel real good about yourself? On our own, we're all losers. Don't you feel good about yourself today? I went to church and the preacher told me I'm a loser. Well, guess what? I'm a loser too. We're all losers on our own. We're worse than losers. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the word of God. On our own, apart from Christ, we're not, we, we aren't just losing, we've already lost. Only Jesus makes us triumphant in him. You see, I grew up playing sports. I know it doesn't look like it today, but I was a bit athletic back in my day, you know. I was talking to somebody yesterday at a family get-together and said, yeah, I... I used to ski. Stacy looked at me like I had four heads. 
what? I was like, it's been a while. It's been a while since I skied. Yes. Did I lose myself? There I am. Okay. I've skied. And Stacey's looking at me like, when? I had to remind her. It was when I was a youth pastor, you know, back in the dark ages. We took, you remember taking teenagers up to, to go ski? She's like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't try it today. No, 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 there's not a There's not a set of skis that can handle the top weight that is placing down on theirs, okay? Um, and, and I just picture myself falling down and the snow just keeps collecting. And by the time it gets down to the lodge, it hits the news, man. It was, you know, lodge is leveled by an out-of-control snow, uh, abominable snowman or something like that. That would happen. But I used to play sports. And when I played sports, I was extremely competitive. I didn't play to have fun. No, 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 no. You don't play sports to have fun. You play to win. And you don't play to win. You play to murder the competition. That's what you do. I'm too competitive. I've been known to have to walk away and, and, and de-stress from a heated game of Monopoly. Okay? That's how competitive I am. All right? I want to humiliate the competition. I want to walk away and I want to walk off the field or the court and say, I didn't just win. I killed them. And they're never coming back to play me again. I thought, you were, I thought we were just playing basketball, Derek. No, no, we were in a death match like the Colosseum of old in the days of Rome. That's what we were doing, right? And that's what sin does to us. Sin makes us competitive. Sin makes us feel like we're constantly in a losing fight. Here's the thing. As competitive I, as I was, I didn't always win. I didn't. And the times that I did win is because I had really good teammates, Sin will make us feel not just like we're losing, but it'll make us feel like we're already dead. Like we don't even belong on the field. But, but, Jesus came to our defense. See, how do I know that I become triumphant when all I know is death and defeat? How does my life in Christ make me realize the triumph I have in him? Because we have to come to understand I can't be triumphant on my own. Someone has to come to my defense. Someone has to fight for me. And in Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Can somebody get excited about that one, man? That is power-packed right there. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Mighty God. He's the Lord of Lords, the Wonderful Counselor. He is going to set up a kingdom that is never, never saddled with sin or death or injustice or oppression or racism or sexism or any of that. He's going to set up that kind of kingdom. And this is the prophecy telling us that Jesus is the ultimate, undefeated, grand champion of all. You don't come in to defeat Jesus. You come to surrender to Jesus and be made triumphant in him. Why? Because Jesus doesn't lose. Jesus comes to our defense, and when Jesus comes to our defense, it's a sure thing because Jesus doesn't lose. Why? Because God doesn't lose. He never has, and he never will. And it may look like, when you look around today, it may look like God's losing. It may look like Christianity is not doing so well. It may look like the church is on the ropes, but I've got news for you, friend. The book of Revelation is still true. God is on his throne, and our victory may not look the way we expected it to look, but we still know the one who already knew what victory would look like because it's already sure in his hand as though it's already happened. So take heart in that. 
Find your faith in knowing that we serve a God who's not dead. We serve a God who's not just a nice little story in December and in April or March or whenever solstice decides to have Easter. We serve a God who is living and breathing and alive today and tomorrow and was alive yesterday and has always been alive and will always be alive. And in him, we will be alive. We are triumphant in him. The song says, oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. And you're sitting there thinking that's still not me, pastor. It's still not me. You're sitting right there saying, I'm none of these things. You've been trying to win, but you know you're not. You're still fighting a fight. It's because you haven't been on the right team. So no, I'm saved. I know Christ is my savior. But are you still going back in your closet and pulling out the old jersey? See, we can be saved. We can be on the right team. But we can forget it sometimes. We can forget it. We can always switch sides, not meaning that we lose our salvation, but we just don't walk with Christ the way we should. We don't come to him. You see that, oh, come all you faithful is not just come to me to be saved. It's come to me each and every day. It's a daily abiding with him every day, saying, I'm making the choice. I'm going to abide in you. I'm choosing faithfulness. I'm choosing joy. I'm choosing triumph in you. Isn't it time to come to Christ? If that's you, if you haven't come to Christ as your Savior, would you come to him today? Because without it, it's weary. It's tiring. It's scary. You see, it's when we come to Jesus that we're made faithful. We are saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of our works unless any man should boast. It's when we come to Jesus that we will find joy. A, a joy that the Bible says is, uh, it is unspeakable and it is full of the glory of God. And it's when we come to Jesus that we're made triumphant in him. We're made more than conquerors through him who loved us. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I need to remember that. Because sometimes I look and I see, you know, things may not be going the way that I expect them to go or... I had dreams and I had visions that it would be like this and it turned out completely different or it's not looking the way I want it to look and struggles maybe in the church or struggles in this or struggles in that and I think, man, I'm losing. <laughs> Jesus has to remind me, son, you're mine. You can't lose because I don't and you're mine. It's a difference in how we look at the world. If you've experienced that, you know the power of the next line of that song. Oh, come, all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You see, it's the faithful, it's the joyful, and it's the triumphant who adore him. Jesus becomes beautiful. The more we look at him, the more we keep our eyes on him, the more beautiful he becomes. We never tire of it. You see, in our text, there's some that we saw that not everyone was joyful and triumphant at the news that Jesus had shown up. You see, when the Magi came to Herod and said, we've come to look and to find the king that was born king of the Jews, it was really an invitation for Herod to come along. And what did Herod say? He said, hey, go and find him and come back and tell me where he is because then I'll go worship him as well. But we know what Herod didn't want to do. Some of the, some of the most disgusting and vile and terroristic verses you'll find in all of scripture are written right after this passage that we just read. When Herod decides that he's going to order the execution of all children under the age of two in Bethlehem and throughout the region so that he can find Jesus and take this king out because Herod wasn't overcome with joyfulness. Herod was overcome with fear of being usurped. And that's the way our flesh feels 
when we hear the gospel. That's the way our flesh responds to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. The flesh doesn't want to be usurped by the Spirit. So we have a choice. Will we be like the shepherds and the magi? Or will we be like Herod? Where we say, I don't want to adore Christ. I abhor Christ. I want to put Christ out of my life. And it didn't end well for Herod, and it won't end well for anyone who chooses not to come to Jesus Christ. Herod had a murderous desire. And for many people, this sums up the struggle that's going on in the soul. Our soul is constantly wrestling with coming to Christ and running from Christ. With enthroning Jesus and with exterminating him. And that may be the struggle that you're going through right now. And if it is, I encourage you to come today or reach out to us. We want to help you. We'll talk with you as long as we need, counsel with you, pray with you, whatever we need to show you that Jesus is the way. He's the only way. Come to him. So as we bow our head and we close our eyes this morning, the call is come to me, all you faithful, all you joyful, all you triumphant. But the call first and foremost is come to me, all who are tired and all who are weary and all who are burdened. If that's you this morning, I feel tired and I feel weary and I feel burdened. The answer is come to him and he will give you rest. If you haven't come to him today, if you haven't placed your faith in, in Jesus Christ, then today's the day. How do I do that? What steps do I need to take? So all the steps have been taken. Jesus took every step up Calvary's hill and he died. And then he took steps out of the tomb three days later and he conquered death in the grave so that you could have eternal life. And what the Bible says is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. We have to admit that we're sinners. We have to admit that we're weary and broken and tired and burned out and that we're sinners. And he says, come to me and find rest. If that's you today, come to him. Ask him to save you. Say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust you. I put my faith in you. I don't just want to try you out for a little while. I want to follow you. I put my faith in you. to Take me to heaven when my life is over. Forgive me of my sin. I come to you. Make me faithful. Make me joyful. Make me triumphant in you. If that's you this morning and you did that, then I encourage you to come and Talk to somebody today and let us know so we can rejoice with you. But if you have more questions, we'll be here. If you're watching today, reach out to us by email, gracewaylex at gmail.com or just leave a message in the comment section on the video as well. But as we pray this morning, if you need to come for anything, would you please do that? Father, move in this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we... Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.